Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 238 with Anne Demaray. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation because Anne is sharing the keys to great first impressions and being socially generous and forming lasting impressions, likability, a lot of good stuff, good stuff. So you'll learn one, the most common interpersonal flaws and how to fix them. Two, four universally appreciated social gifts that you can give. And three, how to bounce back from a bad first impression. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep238. Now here's Anne's story. Anne Demaray is the founder of First Impressions and has more than 20 years of experience in applied psychology, specializing in interpersonal communication, impression management, social skills, and executive coaching. She works with senior executives who want to enhance their leadership impact. She was a consultant to the Social Intelligence Program at Columbia University Business School. Her client list includes Verizon, Hilton Hotels, Disney, Bank of America, Xerox, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, the FBI, and many others. And is co-author of First Impressions, What You Don't Know About How Others See You, which was published by Random House and translated into 24 languages. Anne holds a PhD in psychology from New York University. Here's Anne. Anne, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, I'm so excited, Pete. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, well, I think we're going to have so much fun uh, digging into this. And I understand that there is an interesting backstory behind your company, First Impressions. Can we hear it? Well, I started First Impressions, well, from doing a lot of executive coaching and leadership workshops in the corporate world. And I realized that the core skills that actually make you awesome at work and in life are interpersonal skills and self-presentation. So I took some of the corporate methodologies to the personal world as well and give people feedback about how they come across, not just in business settings, but in job interviews and even simulated first dates. And we do seminars on this topic. So it's really a deep dive into self-presentation. Now, I mean, simulated first dates, is that something that you came up with as a means of helping folks improve their skills or how did that emerge? Yes, we realized that this kind of methodology of giving people feedback about how they come across is really, really powerful, but it was only available to people in the corporate world or actually on the other end in like psychiatric hospitals. But for the average man on the street, there wasn't an opportunity to get feedback about how they come across socially and interpersonally. So my business partner at the time, Valerie White, and I started this business where we would thought who would be most interested. And we thought people on the dating world. So we actually did create and launch the very first, others are doing it now, but we had the very first simulated first state business model. That is so cool. And so then I have some friends, we've talked about how some people could use some help and we'd be happy to give it to them. So (laughs) that must've been interesting. Yeah. And it's awkward to give it to your friends. So that's why it's helpful to go to a professional. So yeah. So it was really interesting, met fabulous people and people learned a, a real lot. They had blind spots they never knew before. They got that kind of feedback. Well, so yeah, that's exactly where I'd like to go next in terms of these blind spots. What are some of the things you see over and over again that people, they they just don't even realize others are perceiving or inferring about them? Well, there's so many ways that we do 
some things, Pete, that are positive and send a positive message. And then there's some things we do that send unintended negative messages. And so there's a lot of ways that people can have blind spots. We just don't see ourselves the way others do. When we hear ourselves on audio or even videotape, it seems awkward. So there's lots of these blind spots. So some of the common ones, which I can share a little bit of, is well, one is called conversational narcissism. And that means talking a lot about yourself, using I statements and talking about your world, your family, your work, etc. And it's actually more common than you realize. I and mean, people just sometimes aren't aware that they're going on about themselves just because it's interesting and top of mind, but it's an easy fix. If you know you have this tendency or you find yourself speaking a little bit more, you know, a little bit longer than you intended about yourself, you can just shift it and say, so tell me, Pete, about you and tell me about your world. I was just talking about X. You share what you're, you know, doing in that area. So it's a common flaw with an easy fix. Okay, what else? Well, another one, there's people that do research, interestingly, about topics and how, which are the most appealing and least appealing. The least appealing topic is what they called negative egocentrism. (sighs) That's complaining about one's problems. Again, these top of mind, like the big ones, my computer glitch, my iPhone, you know, has this problem. These kinds of things are really, really boring to other people, especially people you've just met. And I really appreciate you saying this because sometimes people do this and I'm thinking, I don't care. And then I feel like, oh, Pete, you should be more compassionate. You should be more kind and listening. But you're telling me, no, Pete, it's universally people don't really want to hear it. We could talk about how to turn that more positively, but it is a universally unappealing topic and you're reacting the way most people do. Okay. I'm not a jerk. (laughs) But sometimes we all might fall into a pattern of whining about this. So it's a good thing to have a little self-check about. I've complained about a problem. You probably have. It's good to remember that it's really an unappealing and it's a a real downer. All right. So another thing that research has shown is, again, it's a negativity thing, speaking negatively about others. So if you describe someone as being like lazy and tedious or boring or something, we have this mental muddling, they call it, where we sometimes leave the conversation confused and sometimes remember you as the person with those negative traits. So. If on the other hand, you describe someone, your colleague, that's like really creative and strategic and fun and all these things, after the conversation, people might project those qualities on you. So it's in your self-interest. First of all, it's more interesting and not as boring as this negative, but it's in your self-interest to speak positively about other people. It creates a good vibe and it actually makes you seem more awesome. Okay. Oh, I like that. So very, very very helpful stuff there in terms of narcissism. It's me, 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 complaining about mm-hmm. problem that I'm experiencing, speaking negatively about others are all sort of, it sounds like are some universal things yeah. that are not a winning approach. And, and so then I'd love to get your take then when it comes to some of the particulars that we have, our own blind spots, by definition, we, I guess we don't know about them. So how could we know you know, how we're making other people's feel. I understand you've got a framework associated with four ways to focus. Yeah. So in any conversation with, say, two people, there's different ways we focus. The first is what's how I'm feeling. So if I'm meeting a new client, I might be feeling nervous or confident or uncomfortable or whatever. It just pops to my awareness. It's a natural focus. But then after a little while, I might think, okay, well, how do I think about this other person? What are my thoughts or feelings about them? 
And then the third way is eventually, if I know I'm being evaluated, like I'm on a client pitch or a job interview, I might think, what's this person? What's Pete thinking about me? You know, I'm kind of curious about that. But the one way we don't typically focus is on how's that person feeling about him or herself and how is my interaction with them impacting them with the aim to like be more socially generous. So if you use it as a framework to be socially generous, make other people feel better about themselves, you'll make a more awesome impression. Oh, and I I dig that because I was chucking along. It's like, okay, this is like a little two by two we're talking about here in terms of us and them and then the feelings. And you're right. How are they feeling about themselves is not an active question that I'm pursuing in my internal dialogue very much. And so I guess I'm wondering, how can we even know how they're feeling about themselves and what are some key things that we can do to, I guess, help them feel better if they're feeling bad in a certain way? Well, it's a good question. Yeah, it's a really good question. People are saying, well, I'd like to be more socially generous. You know, I give money to charity, but I don't think about giving to other people. And people have different things they like out of interaction, but there's some universals. We call them social gifts, things that most people like. So there's four of them. The first one is feeling appreciated. So if you have a colleague that says something that you think is interesting or does something creative and you point that out rather than remaining quiet, that makes people feel good when they feel like you respect their talents or accomplishments. It's just a universally positive thing to feel respected in that regard. The next one is feeling connected. We all like to feel part of a larger, connected, interdependent group. So if you say something and I say, I feel the same way too, or I share that value, or I had that experience, or I agree with you, that makes that, that's a gift of connection. The third one is just making people feel a sense of elevation, you know, a little levity. You know, we probably all know people that when you talk to them, they put a smile on your face, you're happy. Most people, it's kind of neutral. And then there's kind of the Debbie Downers. So it's good to think about, what about you? Do you like It doesn't mean you have to be a jokester, but just having a more kind of uplifting manner and mood about you is a gift. Most people like to feel elevated. Mm -hmm. And the last is what we call enlightenment, like providing information, sharing your ideas or having new information or putting things out on the table there. It makes you more interesting and it's enlightening them with more fun facts and things. So having these four things, if maybe you know someone offhand that kind of provides you with these things, makes you feel smart and puts you in a fun mood and they're interesting. It's very charismatic. It's really strong leadership qualities. But if you're like most people, you may have a stronger suit, like you might be really informative, but you don't go out of your way to make people feel appreciated. So you might be depriving them of that kind of feeling and warmth and you're not as generous in that area. If you think about maybe where you are strong and weak, you can tweak that and go out of your way to say, gee, I don't really go out, think about complimenting people and maybe I should in a genuine way and that will make them feel better. And so they'll feel better from having interacted with me. So, you know, it's funny. Right now I'm thinking about my former roommate, Dave, who just everybody loves. And I think he very much does some of these things in terms of appreciating and respecting, feeling connected, and then the levity and enlightenment. And sometimes I'm just thinking about a time where 
I was playing some old school dorky computer game that I loved from my childhood <laughs> called Master of Orion. And I was all fired up because mm-hmm. try to take over the galaxy. And, and that's the idea is like nobody really cares if you start talking about this to people. So I was playing the game and I went back to the kitchen and I was like, oh, how you doing? I was like, oh, I'm awesome because I've got all these missile bases. They can't touch me. And I'm just, but I'm just, you know, smoking the other guys. He's like, well, how many missile bases do you have? <laughs> I was like, well, I got like 120. He's like, how many do they have? He's like, and I was like, 40. He's like, wow, you're going to destroy them. <laughs> so he was like generally interested, like in totally engaged in your world. Well, yeah, I don't think he was really interested, but in a way there was that levity in that he's uh-huh. going to appreciate and respect me insofar as he's like, I know you're excited about this right now. And, and I think that's cool. I like that you're uh-huh. excited and we can sort of connect about that a little bit. And then we could mm-hmm. just have a little bit of a laugh associated with, well, what if those missile bases have some crazy shields? I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> and so I thought that was just noteworthy because well, everyone loves Dave and Dave engaged me in that conversation in a way that most people really don't. It's like, all right, good luck, dude. You know, you know, most would just <laughs> turn it, you know, conclude it pretty quickly. Right. So he was connecting and elevating and actually respecting how many bases you had or whatever, right? Right. And I think the levity in particular is it's like I don't know how you teach or deliver that, but I guess part of it is smiles and laughs and eye contact and a vocal intonation. It's like, oh, you know, that sounds a little kind of interested, but what are some of the key ways or practices, I should say, that folks who bring that? Part of it is being in the moment. I mean, he was in the moment. He was listening intently. He was engaging and really exploring that. So that's a really good thing. And also finding fun in something like sort of the positive. Hey, this is so great. Pete's having a great time. Like you said, he's like just feeding off of that positive mood and giving you back more of it. Yes, that's a great way to say it. Feeding off the positive mood and giving back more of it. And I think when it comes to the appreciation, sometimes... I recall once I was on a date and it wasn't so great. And I was wondering, why is that? And maybe one or both of us could have used your services <laughs> to, to have improved it. And I think it was like, I would say something and she just sort of said, okay, it's almost like the opposite of improv. Yes. And instead of like entering my world, maybe it was silly. Maybe it was different. Or maybe it was odd. I don't know. But instead of entering that world, she just sort of put the kibosh on it, as opposed to even just acknowledging something that someone said, and then taking another step into it, I think feels like you're being appreciated. Yes. It's a strong feeling, right? It feels really good. And asking back to that, asking open-ended questions, which is what your roommate was doing, like how many, and just exploring, and rather than having these sort of superficial conversations where it just ends or asking a closed-ended question, that shows a genuine curiosity. And cultivating that actually yields unexpected results. Like sometimes we don't think this person's going to be interesting. And if you explore a little below the surface, you find really interesting things in people. And so if you can let go of our self-focus, really explore, discover other people, you can find lots of fun. Well, and can you share maybe in terms of that curiosity, I guess maybe some of the questions that you ask yourself to stoke the curiosity, as well as questions you ask your, your conversation partner to get into more intriguing realms of conversation. Yeah. So showing interest is one of the most important fundamentals of making a positive impression. And if you remember nothing else from this, this is one of the most 
powerful techniques to use is to show interest. So you, there's a physical focus and the eye contact, these open-ended questions. And then one of the easiest things to do is to say, oh, that reminds me of me. I used to play this other video game and let me tell you about that and how this fantastic time when I blew up all the galaxies. It's very easy to segue back to our own world and steal the spotlight away. So it's one thing to be super mindful of, even if you're dying to share your story, to try to keep the spotlight on the other person. And that means really managing your distractions and being able to stay in the moment with that person and relate to what they're saying. It's not that hard to do. It just takes a little bit of practice and a little bit checking some tendencies of segueing. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Sometimes people even segue back to themselves as a way to showcase some positive quality about themselves. They sometimes do it deliberately to like talk about themselves. One time I conquered the galaxy when I was outnumbered five to one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that's a really, really important fundamental of making an awesome impression. So part of what we do in, um, by the way, we have a book called First Impressions, What You Don't Know About How Others See You, is break it down into what are the key things that make people have, you know, a strong impression and come across awesomely. That's one of the big ones. Making yourself accessible with your body language and mood, being more proactive and introducing yourself rather than passive is allows people to kind of connect with you and feel more comfort around you. So that's just a matter of just walking right up to folks and saying hello and, and shaking a hand or any particulars to note there? You know, we've all walked into a party or a conference where we really don't know anyone and there's a sort of the choice between sort of standing in the corner with your cocktail or going up and introducing yourself. And it's a discomfort that a lot of us have to overcome. So having that you look better and you look more confident and you'll feel better if you take the active versus the passive approach. Go up to a person that's standing alone who's probably dying to talk to someone. Be okay with going up to other people. Invite other people to join you. It makes other people feel more comfortable around you. You're easy to connect with. Now, obviously, in some situations, people are going to be having an intense conversation that you can't bust into. But if you practice more often just going up and saying, I'm Pete with this organization, blah, 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 it just makes everyone more comfortable around you. And then they can see you in that light. All right. So we got that that showing interest. We got the accessibility. What are some of the other key fundamentals? So then you're at a conference and you have to figure out what to talk about, your mutual blank slates. What do you talk about? Should you jump into your position on gun control or politics? So generally you want to like sort of ease in. You want to like establish trust and comfort with someone before you jump into like more heady things that are even more interesting. But it really sounds kind of banal, but talking about just the moment, the weather, the situation, the music that's playing, that just makes people feel like you're a nice, normal person and we're sharing the same space. Then talk about the facts like, hey, what's going on in the company or what's going on in this conference and just sharing those kinds of things. And then if you have that kind of trust and rapport, then you can talk more about opinions. Hey, what did you think about that speaker? Or what do you think about what's going on in the office politics, et cetera? You can go into that. And then if you disagree, you still have a, such a foundation of maybe connection that you know, you can work through those things and really enjoy that person rather than jumping into things. I do. I like that segmentation there in terms of A, the situation, B, facts, and C, opinions. Because opinions, even if they're not like 
I don't know, gun control, abortion, Donald Trump, insert high controversy matter. Even if it is, opinion is like the speaker, you know, that does feel a little bit, well, actually maybe significantly more sensitive insofar as, well, I don't know, is that, is that speaker like your cousin? Like uh, <laughs> if I say that, I thought they were really boring, that might be offensive to you. Or if this is a high point of passion for you, and I say that I thought it was dumb and completely unnecessary, that could be you know destructive. So you're right, like the opinion, even if it's maybe potentially innocuous, like the, the speaker or the food, that is more sensitive than facts or the situation. Mm-hmm. So it's just easing in and establishing trust and connection, and then you can go a little bit further. And it's important in the beginning to kind of be brief and then make sure that you're not talking at people and you're talking with them. Sometimes people fall into a pattern of sermonizing, trying to convince people of their way of thinking, lecturing. Men tend to do a little bit more of this. They know something on a topic and they like to talk about it. Male pattern lecturing. And when I talk to men after they do this, they often say that makes them feel good. They feel like they're informing people. They feel smart. And so it's just, you have to remember that you're pinning someone as an audience member, depriving them again of those other social gifts. Women have a tendency to tell long stories about people that other people don't know. You know, my friend is having this relationship problem, blah, 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 that is unappealing in a lot of situations. So you want to be careful not to go into a kind of talking at people, not getting too heavy or banal. So those are some ways to sort of think about topics of the world. Then another thing that's helpful to know is to self-disclose. We all sort of know that we should share basic demographics about ourselves. The more you do, I mean, there's this whole movement towards being authentic at work, right? So you want to be like a whole person and be honest. And then if you do share parts of yourself, then people feel more trust and psychological safety with you. They're easier to collaborate with you. Of course, there's some guardrails. You want to keep it, again, having some levity and you don't want to go into something that's too deep and personal and making people feel awkward. But if you can give people portals to talk to you about things other than work, they feel more comfortable around you. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. So things that are good to share, like your passions, what really sparks you, what galaxies you like to go to, etc. Vulnerabilities are humanizing. You know, I screwed up on this. I feel like such a dope or whatever. It just makes people feel comfortable around you. And so then I'd love a couple of guidelines there with regard to how much is too much. <laughs> it seems like my hunch is you could probably disclose a bit more vulnerability than you feel like you can disclose, hence the word vulnerable and what it means. But do you have any kind of clear don'ts with regard to your self-disclosure? I don't know if there's any hard or fast rules, but you might want to sort of match. So if you share something and someone shows something back, that's giving you kind of the green light. But if people seem uncomfortable, then you might be oversharing. And again, a lot of like negative stuff. You had this knockdown, drag out fight with your significant other the night before might be uncomfortable for people to hear. So you might want to be kind of careful about that. But that said, people feel complimented if you share things about yourself that they wouldn't know unless you share with them. That's a, it says, I like you. It says, I trust you. It's really true. And I know I'm thinking about some people and it's like, man, you know what? I feel like I'm really close with that guy. And then I come to learn, wait a minute, he discloses that way to everybody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I, I guess I'm still 
close with that guy, but I guess I'm not like special. You thought like it was a buddy. Mm-hmm. Right. But I had inferred that we had a pretty privileged relationship based upon, well, he really just sort of shared what was going on with that girl and her moving and, and all the, the implications mm-hmm. and how it was tough. It's like, man, it's like me, me and this guy, we're tight. And, uh, and then it, it's like, oh, I guess he's shared that with many people. <laughs> uh-huh. But you had that experience, right? It's totally. Compliment. Yes. He likes me enough, right. right? Absolutely. So, I mean, within, I think the more the better. We have to sort of understand that the culture of the workplace that you're in, which is going to vary. But yes, it makes people feel more comfortable around you. So the next fundamental is kind of the dynamics of the conversation, like the rhythm, the speed, the intensity, who talks more, etc., You've probably all been in meetings where you notice that some people talk a lot more than other people. The natural extroverts are going to just narrate their thoughts and ramble, and the natural introverts maybe need a little bit more time to speak and will speak less. So these things really affect how people show up and how much that they share and how they make other people feel. So it's really helpful to think about yourself. Like if you're in a meeting of four people, you should probably be speaking on average a quarter of the time. Mm-hmm. Are you someone that typically speaks more than your quarter or less than your quarter kind of thing? And so being able to synchronize with the other person will really increase the quality of your interaction and how they feel around you. So some tips for this. If you're an overtalker, before you go to a meeting, give yourself a budget. I only get X number of minutes, whatever the math gives you, and kind of like highlight the key things you want to speak to. If you're someone that kind of underspeaks, make sure that you think in advance of the, some things you want to introduce so that you've kind of teed them up. And try to speak earlier in the meeting. Try to say something even procedural like, hey, thanks for the agenda, Pete, and just get yourself kind of as a presence at the table. And so it's about the speed, intensity, whether you pause for others, how you synchronize. Another key thing, if there's, it's almost inevitable that two people will speak at the same time in some interaction. I think you and I already have. (laughs) And it's just part of life. And then whether you yield typically or regain the floor has sends a message. If you yield, it's like saying, Pete, whatever you have to say is way more interesting than what I wanted to share. But if I overtalk you, it sends the opposite message. Right. Now, I'd be very careful <laughs> not to talk at the same time. But if I did, I would yield to you, Anne. I would yield. I've learned. Uh, I'm learning. It's okay. It's part of nature to, to speak at the same time. All right. My next fundamental is perspective. That's kind of the psychological self-presentation you make, whether you show flexibility, how positive or negative, whether you present yourself as a victim, blame your boss for things or superior or inferior. All these things can come out and may or may not serve you well. In general, as you probably would guess, it's better to be flexible and positive and sort of you know equal with people rather than blameful or negative. But some people have a blind spot. They think, oh, I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. It doesn't mean that I'm being negative about this. So it might be something to be aware of if your patterns are sending a message you didn't intend. And the last one is your physical presentation. And that's really about you know, how you kind of show up physically. And regardless of how you look or your age, whether you show pride versus shame in your body, really affects kind of the confidence that you project and whether you have impact. Pride versus shame. 
Yeah. All right. So can you give us some examples of what a prideful versus shameful presentation looks like? Well, the classic example is Superman or Clark Kent, right? Same body. And you can see women that would be considered like large or not sexy, like Queen Latifah shows up like, I am the queen. I mean, she has this incredible confidence, wears form-fitting things, and she's just magnetic, right? Mm -hmm. So there's people that can just show up and have all the confidence in the world. And there's some people that can be fabulously looking and just sort of recoil. So there is an expansiveness about pride and a sort of recoiling about shame. Okay, well, now I'm thinking about power posing, Amy Cuddy, like you said, expansive poses. And what are some of the other ingredients there? Yeah, so Amy Cuddy's work has, as you may know, has gotten some scrutiny, but I'm actually an advocate and find it personally to be beneficial. So if the listening audience doesn't know, she proposes expanding your body for two minutes before you have a presentation in like a starfish or like a Wonder Woman, and it can give you more confidence and you feel stronger and less nervous in new situations. But there is data that I've read before she came out with hers that when you naturally assign people to a superior versus inferior role, just randomly, like with subjects in an experiment, the teacher or the, the superior role is naturally spreads their arms further and takes up more physical space. It's almost ingrained in our behavior, in our role-taking. And the subordinate would be more kind of smaller, makes oneself smaller. Okay. So that's one sort of ingredient or dimension associated with presentation is, do, do you feel like, oh, I, uh, I don't deserve to take up this space? So you are very timid versus I am the queen or just sort of occupying that Superman Clark Kent. What are some of the other dimensions or ingredients associated with sort of a, a strong presentation? So strong body language, and there's a lot of research that's unfounded, but there are some things that are really strong and are supported with projecting power. So having a good physical posture. So you can notice, and actually before you give a presentation, use your little devices and videotape yourself. Do you have a strong, you know, your shoulders out or do you slouch at all? That makes a really big difference. Leaning in slightly versus leaning back, even in a meeting, shows interest and power and engagement, eye contact really matters a lot. So there's data showing that most people make eye contact about 50-60% of the time. If you go above that, it's still even better because it shows really like you're focused and that all that charismatic kind of attention on someone. If you go below that, you can look distrustful or uncomfortable. And when I work with people that don't make the average amount of eye contact, they often don't know because they look away before others. So they don't really get the data, so to speak. So if you have any sense that you might be like that, or you're not sure, it's really helpful to ask somebody to give you some feedback on that because it really makes a difference. And it's something that you can train yourself over time to just Go past your comfort point and just stay in eye contact with someone. And then smiling. Well, okay. Just because we're on the eye contact point. When it comes to that, I would love your take on, should you look right at the person's eyeball, their pupil, their eyebrow, their nose, the left eye, the right eye? Is there an optimal means of making eye contact? Most of the studies I've seen shown that people actually sort of scan around that space 
they don't necessarily lock, you know, left eye to right eye, etc. But looking around that person's facial area constitutes eye contact. It's when people look at the wall. Some people kind of feel like they need a blank visual to think and that like a face is sort of like visually noisy. So you don't have to worry about the percentage of time you're looking at the brow versus the eyes, but looking in that general area would give that impression. And then the smiling one, which we talked about before, it's so powerful that it affects people's behavior that this study that they have people smile upon people or not smile upon them on the street and then later have someone drop something. The smile upon people are more likely to pick something up for the person than the ones that didn't get smiled upon. A very like brief, like one second smile affects people's mood and their actual behavior. So when you smile, you're kind of projecting that physical confidence and you're projecting that presence, that pride, right? That you're happy, that you're safe, and that you're a positive person. And, you know, it affects the world around you in this really nice way. That's nice. Thank you. All right. Well, so then I'm wondering now, these are a nice sort of set of great ingredients for making a a solid first impression. Any particular tweaks or emphasis you'd, you'd put on this when it comes to, you know, in the work environment so that it's really coming across in in great ways with the people you see, uh, not just once, but, you know, again and again and again. Sure. I have some tips. One thing that's so fabulous about being in the workplace compared to the social world is you can get feedback from these things. Your boss's job is to give you feedback. And if you solicit the feedback, it's even makes you look really proactive and development oriented. So if you have any suspicion that maybe you could be better at any of these things we talked about, you can go to your boss and say, hey, I'd love to know how I come across when I'm presenting. Do you have any feedback about my body language? How about my communication style in meetings? Do you think I speak the right amount? Should I speak more or less, et cetera? In the social world, no one will give you this. And when you went on the date that didn't go well, no one (laughs) gave you any feedback, right? Right. So it's so wonderful that it actually affects the bottom line. And your manager would probably love to tell you this. Or you could get a mentor or ask a trusted colleague. But the key things you want to do that really are going to make you awesome is making yourself accessible. And there's something about this now, this big movement towards psychological safety Mm -hmm. so that you can feel make people feel comfortable around you, comfortable to raise ideas, to maybe debate things. So when you make, by disclosing things and making people feel good around you, you create that kind of feeling of trust and safety and that fosters much better collaboration and much better work flow and environment. So that's an easy and really helpful thing you can do. Again, being interested and coming into meetings with, yes, you've got some ideas, but really opening your heart, being other-oriented, exploring if someone says something that you think is really a bad idea, challenging yourself to say, hey, I never thought of it that way. Can you tell me more about that point of view? You know, that can help you to cultivate that curiosity that will make you actually available to more ideas and all more comfortable as a collaborator. And then again, being careful to present yourself as a whole person and making sure that people feel that they know you. This is why they do a lot of team building, that you're someone that they can go to and trust and feel that you care about them. So 
going back to being my social generosity framework, being generous to people so that they feel good about themselves from interacting with you. And it's interesting as even as we're chatting, I've, I've heard you use the word awesome several times. And I don't know if that's just part of your common vernacular or if this is a conscientious choice on your part with the name of the show, how to be awesome at your job and, and word choice. Is there something to that when it comes to using a, a social gift and, and being endearing, using the words that the person you're speaking with uses? Yes. Very good catch there, Pete. Yes. If you use other people's vocabulary, if they call something something and it's not the word you normally choose to use, adapt to the other person's vocabulary. So that does make people feel more connected to you. Try to make it easier for them. Use their words. So I was using awesome. I like the word awesome a lot, but I was adapting it to your awesomeness in your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Well, I, I, I'm endeared each time you say it, so it's working. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so then I'm wondering if, let's say, the first impression is not so good and we've made some mistakes, failed to be generous, violating some of the fundamentals of a good first impression. What can we do if we have a, a suboptimal first impression? You know, Is it possible to overcome it? Yes. And you know what happens to the best of us. So it's just, again, part of life. Yes, you can. If, I mean, if you're going to see the person again, if they're going to be a new colleague or client, I mean, if someone you're not going to see again, it would be inappropriate to track them down to try to correct it. But if it's someone that you're <laughs> going to see, you can sort of do a, a little bit of a correction. You can send them an email. I prefer sending an email rather than calling them and putting them on the spot and say, hey, you know, I was really tired when we met the other day. And sometimes when that happens, I do X, like I talk a lot more and I apologize. It's not how I really am. And I really want to get to know you. So I look forward to learning more about you in our next interaction. People often feel endeared by an apology and it can help to reset things more quickly. Like, of course, you have to correct your behavior the next time or you dig yourself deeper. But you can do that. And I think some, not putting them on the spot is more comfortable than saying that directly and having them having to react to it in the moment. If you're uncomfortable doing that, over time, your future positive behaviors will tip the scale and they'll see you as the truly great person that you really are and not that one annoying style person that you were that first time. It takes your working kind of uphill. As I said in the beginning, we form impressions kind of quickly and unconsciously and people expect us to behave in the same kind of way all the time. So you're fighting that, but you can overcome it. Or you can be using the social generosity framework. If you know that person likes a lot of levity or they like lots of information, you can adapt yourself to what they like and give them more of the kind of social gifts that they like. And then you might tip the scales more quickly. So it is very possible to recover. Okay. Thank you. Well, Anne, this has been so much good stuff. Tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I think those are the key things. There's a lot here. Of course, we have this book that I mentioned. And on our website, we have these tables that are a great tool that are like positive behaviors that you do with positive impact. And then some that you do that have an unintended negative impact. And you can print them out and kind of self-evaluate. Do I do that? Do I do that sometimes, often, rarely? It's kind of a little self-awareness tool that's really helpful. And then it can inspire you to try to experiment so that you come across more positively. Okay. Thank you. 
Well, so now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, I had this, it's in actually in the end of our book. It's a good to, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Go. And I love this quote. Go. Yes, I never know go. either. Goethe. <laughs> something like that. I'll use your word, good hair, or goth. And he wrote this. It says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It's my personal approach that creates the climate. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it's my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated and a person is humanized or dehumanized. So I think it's really helpful to realize how much power we have to impact other people around us. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? A favorite book? Well, I'm a huge fan of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think is just a great classic if you haven't read it. It's like a hundred years old or something, but it was uh, a brilliant. There's been so many great writers on this topic and it is something that which I find so interesting is it's not complicated or hard to understand, but it's just not intuitive. So there's many, many people that have spoken about it in really interesting ways. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? So I think this tool that I mentioned of using self-analysis on how you behave, and I also am a huge fan of asking for feedback. And it's something you can do with people and you have to practice saying thank you and not debating it and just processing it and taking note of it. So that's a really great tool. Another tool I use with my coaches is think about how much you respect people, like in your heart of hearts. I call it a respect matrix. All the people, some of them are eight, some of them are two, some of them are fives, you know, with 10 being high. Then thinking about how transparent are you? Do you, do the people that are eights, they probably know that you like them because you behave so positively to them. But to the People that are like twos and fives, do you do they know that? Do you show how much you truly respect people or do you aim to show a higher respect than you really feel? And then my next kind of question on that is what's your goal? And I would argue that if you try to make everyone feel like a 10 in your eyes, like they're your favorite child, that you see something really positive and that you respect them for who they are and where they're coming from, that you have a really positive impact on people. And so sometimes with people that you just naturally aren't drawn to or don't like, it's just part of human nature, seek to learn more about them. Try to find something that you really would genuinely find interesting about them. And there's people have lots of depth. Beautiful. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? So I think that, and since I'm in the personal improvement industry, that if you try to think about just one thing that you want to improve in yourself and make it kind of like a goal. And it could be something as simple as smiling a couple more times per day and focus on that for a while until you make it a new habit. And so make it like something that you put down in your calendar or your to-do list or whatever it is and challenge yourself because these little tiny things that you do, even if you do them, especially if you do them early in your career, will pay you huge dividends. And it's just a sometimes a slight effort or a little bit out of your comfort zone that really not only is good for you, but think of again with the pay it forward. The more you do these things and make other people happy around you, you know, you more you spread like really positive vibes. So think about the people around you as much as yourself. Okay. Thank you. 
And is there a particular nugget or articulation of your message you share that seems to really connect with folks in terms of their, you know, taking notes and, and nodding their heads all the more vigorously when you say it? Well, I think I go back to my generosity thing and thinking about that you can give money and you can donate your time and you can walk for different medical conditions. And we all do all these things all the time, but we sometimes forget to just be enlightening and make someone feel happier and that it's such an easy thing to do. And that again, it can sort of spread and there's this like contagion of it. And that if we all were more socially generous, it would be a happier and warmer world. Beautiful. And is there a place you'd like to point people if they want to learn more or get in touch? Sure. We have a website, of course. It's www.firstimpressions, with an S, consulting.com. And we offer coaching. We have those tables. We have seminars, other information, etc. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Call to action is to find that one thing that they want to work on and commit to it and ask for feedback and make it part of your everyday life or throughout your career. Always try to find one thing to tweak, one way to be just slightly better and be mindful of that. All right. Well, Anne, thank you so much for taking this time. This has been very informative and I appreciate it. And I hope you have tremendous first impressions with whomever you meet. All right. Thanks so much, Peter. It was a lot of fun. I enjoy even just the phrase she used associated with being socially generous because, you know, I think we like to think of ourselves as generous people. I know I try to be generous. I donate to nonprofit organizations. You know, I volunteer. I will pick up the tab from time to time, buy folks drinks, whatever. So wanting to be generous, I think, is in, inside of us for the most part. And But to think about being socially generous really does, I think, kind of up the game with regard to, oh, how am I doing with regard to the smiling, with the eye contact, with the really paying attention, with those sorts of matters. And so I think that's pretty helpful just to think about, are you being socially generous or are you being socially selfish? Nobody wants to be selfish. So I hope that helps and kicks up your game and your generosity and your impressions and your results. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F238. And I hope you push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. His name is Sam Carpenter. He's talking about systems and how that helps reframe your, your thinking and reduces the amount of uh, fire drills, firefighting, rushing around, urgency, taking care of those sorts of things. So I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 